Would you take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 2? Ephesians chapter 2, and we've read the scripture already, but we'll look at it once again in just a few moments. I've entitled the message this morning, Amazing Grace. God's Amazing Grace. In Sunday school recently, we've been studying about the God who saves sinners. In experiencing God, we've been learning how God initiates and even pursues a continuing love relationship with us that is both real and personal. Today in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, I'd like for us to see exactly how God saves us, what is his part, what is our part, what are the results of our salvation, can we be assured of our salvation, how can we know that we are saved. I'd like for us to better understand just how amazing this grace really is. And I'd like for us to be able to sing with greater passion John Newton's famous hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. So let's jump right into our scripture today. I want to remind you first of all of who Paul is writing this letter to. We see it in Ephesians Chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. And you may not think that that's very important, but that's very important when we study God's word to know who the writers were writing to. And here Paul says that I'm writing to the saints, to the sanctified ones, to the believers, to the Christ followers there in Ephesus, to the church at Ephesus. This is his letter to the Ephesians. But as you read the letter to Ephesians, it's important for us to know who Paul was writing to. He's writing to believers. We come to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I want you to notice with me, first of all, their former condition. Their former condition. Read with me in verses 1 through 4, chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient, We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. I want you to notice with me their former condition. Did you hear the words when I read it there? You were, you did, you had, you were. It was their former condition he starts off and he says you were dead in your trespasses and sins 
What does it mean that they were dead? As human beings, as sons and daughters of Adam, we are all spiritually dead. R. Kent Hughes says that we're not just merely in danger of death, but we are absolutely dead. This state of spiritual death is universal to all human beings. John Phillips writes, In our natural fallen state, God sees us as dead in our trespasses and sins. John MacArthur states that they are not dead because of sinful acts that have been committed, but because of their sinful nature. The bottom line is that anyone that does not have Christ living inside of them is dead in their trespasses and sins. Oh, they may well be living life here on earth, but to God they are dead in their trespasses and sins. And that's why Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's what Jesus is referring to. Nicodemus is alive. He's physically alive. But he says to Nicodemus, the religious leader Nicodemus, no doubt, he says, you must be born again. Not just a physical birth, Nicodemus. You must be born again spiritually. You're dead spiritually. You have to be alive spiritually. And so we see, first of all, their former condition, they are dead. But not only are they dead, but they are deceived. Read with me in the uh, end of verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John instructs us to not love the world, neither the things that are in the world, because all that is in the world does not belong to the Father. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In James chapter 4 and verse 4, James is a little more direct. He says, adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Jesus says in Matthew 16 and verse 26, What will it benefit a man if he, ga if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Just like Adam and Eve were deceived in the garden, that serpent of old has been deceiving men and women and boys and girls to believe the lie that the world and the things of this world are worth chasing, they're worth possessing, and worth giving your soul for. The devil's been deceiving us since the garden. But he's also been deceiving people into believing that religion is the answer for their soul. Proverbs 14 and verse 12 reminds us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death and destruction. 
How many people in our world today believe that if they can just turn over a new leaf and if they can just get on the right religious path that they might be all right. If the good outweighs the bad, then they'll be all right when they face their maker one day. And the devil is deceiving people into believing that religion is the answer for their soul. That's why the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? People have been deceived into thinking that they can do something to earn their way to heaven and earn their way to God. They've been deceived. And so we see in their former condition, the Ephesians, the the saved ones in Ephesus, we see that not only were they dead and not only were they deceived, but they were also children of disobedience. Read the rest of uh, verse 2 there. The Spirit now working in the disobedient. David writes in Psalms 51 verse 5 that in his confession to God for the sin that he committed with Bathsheba, he writes, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Paul writes in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, that there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. That includes us here today. There's no one who does what is good. We're not good. We're dead. We're deceived. We're disobedient. Paul writes in Romans 3.23, we know this verse, For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He goes on to say in Romans 5.12, that therefore just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death came as a result of his sin, in this way death has spread to all men because all have sinned. This past week we've been hearing in the news about the, the concern, the worry about the measles outbreak here in the United States and how maybe it was traced to Disneyland and California and people are worried about the measles spreading across the United States. Paul says that because of one sin, death spread to all men because all sinned. And so we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We've been deceived. We're disobedient. And fourthly, we're defiled. Read in verse 3. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. We carried out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts. We were defiled. We wonder why such evil exists in the world and we're horrified when we see what ISIS is capable of doing. But let me remind us, folks, it's because of sin. It's because we're sinners. R. Kent Hughes says that every part of the human person is tainted by sin. He goes on to say that that does not mean that all humans are equally depraved for most 
humans do not go near the depths that they could go. But John Gerstner says, there's always room for deprovement. Not improvement, but deprovement. And so what was their former condition? They were dead in their trespasses and sins, Paul writes. They had been deceived, walking according to the ways of this world. They were disobedient, and they had been defiled. But I also want you to notice one more. They were damned. They were condemned. Read in verse 3. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. They were, by nature, children under wrath. That simply means that if left to their former condition without Christ, they would have no hope and would die and suffer the consequences of their own sin in an eternal hell without end. And I submit to you this morning, Kingsville Baptist Church, that apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, that is also our fate. That wasn't just their fate, that wasn't just their condition, but that is our condition and that is our fate apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you do not know Christ today, according to God's word, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You may have gotten up this morning and you may be here and you may think, well, Kevin, I'm breathing, but according to God's word, if you do not have the living Lord Jesus living inside of your heart and your life, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You're also deceived by the ways of this world. For God's ways are not our ways. And this world says to do this, but God says to do that. And you are deceived. And you may be thinking that religion is the answer, but religion is not the answer. It's not what you do for God, it's what he's already done for you. And my friend, if you're here today and you don't have Jesus living inside of you, not only are you dead in your trespasses and sin, not only are you deceived by the ways of the world and the devil, but you are disobedient. And you actually belong to your father, the devil. According to Jesus' words in John chapter 8 and verse 44, when Jesus confronted the Pharisees because of their lack of belief, he said that you actually belong to your father, the devil. There's only two fathers. And if you have not been adopted into the family of God by faith in Christ Jesus, then unfortunately you belong to your father, the devil. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're deceived according to the ways of this world. You're disobedient and you belong to your father, the devil. You're defiled, which explains why you do what you do. It explains that the reason that you live in sin and you live in bondage, it's because you are defiled. And then it also means that you are damned. 
You're condemned to an eternity in hell because you do not belong to God. Kingsville, these are truly hard words for me to even speak. But it's the truth according to God's word. But I want you to know that that's the bad news. And when God called me a long time ago to preach, he didn't call me just to preach bad news. He said, I've got good news for you to share with the people. And I'm a preacher of the good news of Jesus Christ. And the good news we see beginning in verse 4, and I want you to be ready to read with me in just a minute. I wasn't a big fan of our sister church's radio and television commercials recently where God loves big butts. I really don't like mixing crudeness from our secular society with the purity of God's word. I think there's other ways that we can communicate the gospel than putting on the radio stations and the television stations that God loves big butts. But I want to admit to you, I sure love the first two words of verse 4. I'm pretty stoked when I see the first two words of verse 4. Everybody looking in your Bible, and I think it doesn't matter what translation we're using this morning, I think they'll all be the same. The first two words in verse 4, would you say them with me on the count of three? One, two, three. But God. Say it again. But God. Say it louder. But God. Aren't you glad that there's a but God in verse 4? Because that's what our condition was. That's what our fate was. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had been deceived by the ways of the world. We were found disobedient and belonging to our father, the devil. We had been defiled by our sin. And we were ultimately damned and condemned to hell for lack of belief in Christ Jesus. But God, but God, thank God for the first two words in verse 4. I want us to shift gears and I want us to see not only their former condition, but here's the good news. Their faithful creator. Look with me at their faithful creator. In verse 4, we read, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, he has raised us up and seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I want you to see that our faithful creator, their faithful creator, he did three things. He made them alive through the sacrifice of his son. He saved them by his grace and he seated them in the heavens where he will display the immeasurable riches of his glory and his grace for all eternity. But the Bible says, but God, who is rich in mercy and because of his great love that he had for us, 
He made us alive. He made us alive with the Messiah through the sacrifice of his son. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5, 8 says, But God proves his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 10, He loves us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation just simply means he became our substitute. He took on our sins for our behalf. He took our place. He was the propitiation. He was the punishment for the wrath of God for sin. He took our place on that cross where he proved his love for us. So we know that he loves us. And we know that he sent his son for us. And even though that truth is a great truth indeed, I want you to see that that truth is not in and of itself enough. It's not enough that God just sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. He has to make us alive. We are still dead in our sins. We are still deceived. We are still disobedient. We're still defiled and we're still damned until he makes us alive. But here's the good news. He makes us alive with our Messiah in Christ. And so let me share with you four pictures of how God saves us. First of all, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, we read that God created the heavens and the earth. And in verse 3, God said, let there be light, and all of a sudden there was light. Let me ask you something. Did light produce itself? Did the heavens and the earth form themselves? No. God created the heavens and the earth. And so when we get to the New Testament, Paul uses this same language in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. Paul writes that if there's any man in Christ... He is a new, what? Creation. You're a new creation if you're in Christ Jesus. Old things have been passed away, and look, all things have become new. We were created physically. God created us. We didn't birth ourselves. God created us physically, and we must be created by God a second time. We must be recreated in Christ Jesus. And guess who does the recreation work? It's God. In Ezekiel chapter 37, we read about the valley of the dry bones. God asked the prophet Ezekiel if, if he thought, the prophet thought, that the dry bones could live again. Ezekiel told God that as the Lord God, only you know the answer. And so God told Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones. And in verse 7, we read these words. So I prophesied as I had been commanded, and while I was prophesying, there was a noise. There was a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. And in verse 9 and 10, Ezekiel said, And then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to it that this is what the Lord God says. Breath, come from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath entered them, and they came to life, and they stood on their feet, a vast army. In Ezekiel 
chapter 37. And I ask you today, who gave life to those bones? Did the bones decide to come together? No. God gave breath and gave life to those bones. And that's why those bones came back to life in Ezekiel chapter 37. In John chapter 3, our third picture, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. In verses 5 through 8, we read, Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus said that we must be born again. That's a picture of our salvation. It's a picture of what God does to save us. We have to be born again. Nicodemus didn't understand the language. He didn't understand. What did he say? Do I have to go back into my mother's womb and come out a second time? And Jesus said, no, Nicodemus, you of all people, you're a religious leader, and you don't understand that you've been born physically, but you must also be born spiritually. And then our fourth picture is from John chapter 11 and verse 17. The Bible says that when Jesus arrived in Bethany, he found Lazarus had been buried in a tomb for over four days. And in verse 43, after Jesus had prayed to God, he says, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Anybody know the rest of the story? What did Lazarus do? Dead for four days, what did Lazarus do? He came forth. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. Did Lazarus raise himself from the dead? No, and neither do we. So what does this mean that God makes us alive with the Messiah even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins? It means that we, if we're saved, we were recreated in Christ Jesus. It means that God breathed life into us. It means that we have been born again by the Spirit of God. And it means that He raised us from the dead. He sacrificed His Son. But if that's all that it took, then every one of us would be saved. God has to make a person come to life. He saves us by his grace. Ephesians 1 and verse 5 in our lesson two weeks ago, we read these words, In love he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and his will. In love, according to his favor and his will. Last week, 2 Timothy 1.9 in our Sunday school lesson, he saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. And so it's according to God's favor. It's according to God's will. It's according to God's purpose. It's according to God's grace. It's according to God's plans. God is the one who makes us alive in Christ Jesus. And if you've been saved, it's because God made you alive. He raised you from the dead. He recreated you in Christ Jesus. 
and he birthed you by the Spirit, and he gave your life the breath of the Holy Spirit that you so desperately needed because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It says that he seated us in the heavenlies with Christ. You know, I don't know what all that means, but I just thought that I sure am glad I don't have to read all those heaven books by all these authors to figure out what's going to be, what heaven's going to be like. There's going to be a day when with my own eyes I'm going to get to see the glories of heaven and I'm going to stand before God on the throne. Not me, but him. And it's going to be awesome. And we're going to get to enjoy God forever. He seated us in the heavenlies. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. These are the most familiar verses of the passage. It says that we are saved by grace through faith. And that this is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works lest any man could boast. John Philip says that we argue over what the gift is. Is it the grace? Is it the faith? John Philip says it's the salvation. And you know what? I, I don't disagree with John Phillips, but I sure have a hard time saying that his grace is not a gift. <laughs> I sure have a hard time believing that the faith to believe in him is also not a gift. But I certainly agree with him that salvation is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He planned our salvation. That's His part. That's what God does. Our part is that we must place our faith and trust in Christ. For Hebrews eleven six 6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, But to all who received Him... He gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. That's our part. God's done his part. We have to do our part. We must believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And we know that this salvation is not according to our works or anything that we could have done or did, lest we would be able to boast. Our Sunday school lesson a few weeks ago reminded us that the truth of God's choosing us should not lead us to say, look at me, but rather what? Look at God. Look at how great God is. Not look at me. He didn't choose me for anything that I have done or that I will do. He chose me. And in great humility and in overwhelming thankfulness, we need to say, look to God. Look how great God is. How great thou art, O God. So we've seen their former condition. We've seen their faithful creator. Let me close by pointing out one more, their foreordained calling in verse 10. And I know people get scared when you talk that language, but it's not as scary as you think. Read with me in verse 10. For we are his creation created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time that we should walk in them. When I say foreordained calling, you know what I'm saying? 
that God just already had a plan to not only save you, but to fill you with his spirit and to use you. And he already has good works for you to walk in. He has a plan for your life, and he knows how he wants to use you. And I promise you, it's more than just coming to church one time a week and sitting on a pew. He has plans to save you so that he can use you for his honor and for his glory. Notice that God had planned for the saints in Ephesus to walk in good works that he had planned beforehand. In other words, he planned to save them and then to fill them with his spirit, to shine through them as they served him, his body, and the world. Romans 8, 29 says that those that he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God's up to in your life, or he should be. That's a sign of our salvation, is that he is working in your life to conform you to the image of his son. F.F. Bruce says that we are a work of art. We are his masterpiece. Actually, Jesus is his masterpiece. We're a work of art, and guess what God is doing in our lives? He is working in us and on us to make us into the masterpiece of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what God is doing in the heart of a believer and in the life of a believer. Philippians 1.6, Paul said, I am sure of this that he who started a good work in you will be faithful to carry it out until the day of completion, until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.13 says, For God is working in you, enabling you to both desire and to work out his good purpose. So God is working in you to conform you to the image of his Son. He's working to complete that which he started in you. That is your salvation. And he is working in you that you might desire and work out his good plans that he has for you. Guys, I just had to stop in my notes. It may not wow you, but that wowed me. I just wrote the word, wow. He is working in me. He is trying to conform me to the image of his son. He's completing what he has started in me. And he is enabling me to desire and to do the things that he has called me to do. So what does this look like in everyday life? What did our first verse in experiencing God, what was our first verse? Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. If you were here the other night, Wednesday night, you heard Claude King share the story of a divine encounter that he had with a man who sincerely needed to know that God still saw him and loved him. It was neat to think that God could work to bring the two of those guys together in the way that he did and for Claude to be able to look back and see that God was orchestrating the event the whole time. He knew that God wanted Claude to be with this guy so that this guy could hear what Claude had to say about the story of Hagar and how God sees you in your plight and he still loves you and he has a plan for you. And that guy needed to hear that that day. 
And he had not been to that place in over 17 years. And he went that day. And Claude King said that as I was driving, I kept thinking, well, I've never been this way. And so he turned that way. And he said, I don't think I've ever gone this way. And so he turned that way. And there were only two people in the park that day. Now you tell me, is that, a, is that just a happenstance? Or was that God orchestrating that event the whole time? It was a reminder to even Claude that God is always at work around us. And that he, continue, he pursues a continuing love relationship with us that is both real and personal. Several years ago, I had a similar experience that I'd like to share with you as I close today. My grandmother was battling fluid on her lungs. And she was in and out of the hospitals there in Houston, Texas. And one of the times that she went in, I was really uncertain if this was going to be the last time that I would get to see my grandmother here on earth. And so I asked Brother Philip if I could take some time to go see her, and certainly he encouraged me to go. But he said, Kevin, he said, while you're there, could you also see a, a man by the name of Charlie Moore who was in Houston? Charlie was the husband of one of our church members, and, uh, but he himself was not a member of our church at that time. And Mr. Charlie was a race car driver out in the forest Hills Speedway race cars and, and, uh, and he had been in a terrible, terrible car accident. In fact, they, they had to get him to Houston because they didn't think he was going to live and he was facing a number of surgeries there in Houston just to keep him alive. And so after going and visiting with my grandmother, I shared with her that I was going to make another visit to someone else from our church. And as I walked through the underground tunnel between the two hospitals, I forgive me for not remembering the names of the two hospitals, but there's two hospitals there in Houston that are connected underground by a tunnel. And I was walking through that underground tunnel from one hospital to the next. And I, I want you to hear me very clearly. I did not hear an audible voice. God did not speak to me out loud. He never has. I doubt he ever will. But I want you to know I looked around and I was the only person in that tunnel that day as I was making my way from one hospital to the next. And I heard God speak to me. Again, it was not audible. But I knew in my heart of hearts that God had just shared something with me. And so as I got to the other side of the, the other hospital, I, uh, I first thing I did was I went to uh, a payphone. I know that's a foreign concept, teenagers, but when you get home today, you can ask your uh, parents or your grandparents what a payphone is. But I went to a payphone and I called Brother Philip and I said, Philip, I said, you're never going to believe what I think God just told me. I believe that God just told me that if I would be faithful to share with Charlie today, that Charlie will give his heart and life to me. And I was so excited because I really felt like God had spoken to me and said this. And Brother Philip said, Kevin, he said, as we hang up, I'm going to get some other people to start praying, and we're going to be praying fervently for Mr. Charlie and for his salvation. We had had Mr. Charlie on our prayer list for many years. Many people had gone and tried to share the gospel with him, and he had rejected each time. So when I walked into that hospital room that day, I said hello to Brother Charlie and Mr. Charlie, and the first thing he said was, 
he was shocked. He said, Brother Kevin, he said, what are you doing here? And I told him that I was there to see my grandmother, but that Brother Philip had asked me to check on him as well. And I asked Mr. Charlie, I said, Charlie, I said, you know you almost died. And man, his head just dropped, and he began to shake. And I said, Mr. Charlie, I said, do you know where you would have gone? And with tears in his eyes, he said, Kevin, I would have busted hell wide open. And then he began to weep, and he said, What must I do? How can I be saved? Tell me how to get to Jesus. And I want you to know that day that I believe my evangelism explosion instructor as well as my faith evangelism instructor they probably would have revoked my training certificates because I honestly don't know what I said from that moment on except for I probably said something like this, Charlie, God loves you. And he sent his son Jesus to die for you. And he doesn't want you to go to hell. But I want you to know that day I learned a valuable lesson. It wasn't in my presentation. God had already prepared Mr. Charlie for that moment in time. Charlie's heart was what the Bible says, white unto harvest. I don't think I had to say anything. I just had to be faithful to go and to share. And God did the rest. You know what I was reminded of that day? I'm just a vessel. I'm just simply a vessel that God can use for his pleasure to do whatever he wants to do in my life. I'm just a vessel. I'm just a branch. I am the vine, Jesus said. You are just the branch. He that abides in me and I abide in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're here today and you're still in the former condition. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're deceived. You're defiled. You're disobedient. And maybe God awakened you to the truth that you're still damned and condemned because you have not yet placed your faith and trust in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're here today and God needed you to hear that you are just a vessel. Just a vessel that God wants to use if you will lay down your life and say, God, take me and use me any way you want to use me. Maybe you needed to hear today that you just need to be a vessel for God. We used to sing a song back in the 90s when I was still in the youth ministry. The song went like this. See if you remember it. I'm not going to sing it. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Pure and holy, tried and true, with thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you.
close your eyes and bow your heads. And I want to say that phrase one more time because I believe God can still use that song to touch lives today. In your heart of hearts, can you pray that prayer and say, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Would you stand quietly, reverently, as we give God this time of invitation?